You can say amen loud, even through masks, you can say amen, come on. Excellent. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 2. We are going to see in John chapter 2 three things. We're going to see our need, the one who supplies our needs, and then who gives us what we really need. Turn in John chapter 2. This is God's holy inspired word for us today, and it's timely for us today. Let's read from his word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding along with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. And did not know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. When you see a sign, it's meant to communicate something. It's meant to point to something. If if you're driving down the road and you saw an icon of grapes on a road sign, at the side of the road, what would you think? Tell me, what would you think? What does it indicate? A vineyard, right. We see an icon of grapes on a road sign. You think it represents a vineyard. It's a representative of something. If you're driving down the road and the person in front of you has a fish on the back of their car, what would you think that that's supposed to represent? Or Regardless of how they're driving... Um, or how they're acting or behaving in the car, when they put a fish on the back of their car, the normal fish, not the one with the legs and the weird people, but the, the, the fish in the back of the car, what, what was it? What would it represent? That they're a Christian, right? Because the early Christians, they would, they would draw a sign in the dirt. They would make a sign when they would meet another, another Christian. They would make a sign at the door. They'd put a sign up on their business or the door or whatever. And it was a, a, an acronym. That, that, that word, the Greek word for ichthus, it, it's fish. It's spelled I-C-H-T-H-U-S or Y-S, ichthus. It, it's the word for fish. And you think, well, that's an odd thing. Why they pick the word fish? And, it, and it's just a sign because it's an acronym. It's come to mean something else. It points to, signifies something else. And the fish just stands for uh, Jesus Christ. I-C is actually Jesu Christos, I-C-H. Um, and, then, and then the T-H is Theos, or God. Jesu Christo Theo, or God. The Y is, is, is the Greek also pronounced sometimes as you. It's for Rios, or Son. And then the last S in that, that word is, is Savior. So it's Jesus Christ's son, God's son, Savior. And so when you see a fish, originally in the very first century they came up with that idea. This is not just something that, that um, people, Pentecostals, came up with in the 70s when it became popular. But ichthus is symbolic of Jesus Christ, 
God's Son, Savior, it's symbolic of what we believe, what we profess, the fact that we're believers, we're Christians. The early church, it was versed in signs or symbols. The early church, they they knew that symbols pointed to something else, that signs pointed to something else. It wasn't that we believe we're fish, right? As Christians, we don't think we're fish. No, it's a sign meant to point to something else. And John tells us that this This miracle, and actually he never calls miracles miracles in this book. In John's Gospels, he never refers to miracles as miracles. He refers to them as signs, as signs. And that's important. In in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he's the only author who actually draws attention to signs and what they signify, what they point to, what they represent. Now look in verse 11. It's the key, really, to interpreting this passage is, is found right in verse 11. John often does this. He, he, he waits till the end to, to explain things. Verse 11 is the key to the interpretation of the passage. It says, this is the first of his signs. And when you read that, you think, okay, New Testament, Old Testament, Jews would have been familiar with signs. These New Testament Greek and Jew and Gentile Christians, they would have been familiar with signs. In fact, they use signs. And he says, this is the first of his signs. And what does a sign do? It signifies something. It points to something. It symbolizes something. So this sign, Jesus does a miracle here, but it's not just about the miracle. This miracle is representative, is what John's telling us. This miracle is a sign of something that Jesus did. And, and, and he tells us where he did it. And that's going to become important, I'll tell you later. Why it's important? He mentions twice, Cana and Galilee, Cana and Galilee. Why is that important? Well, it's, that's also a sign. And it says it manifests his glory. So this, this miracle that Jesus did, what John calls a sign, it's a sign that manifests, that shows, that demonstrates, right? So a sign manifests. It points to something. It, it shows something. It makes something clear. This is a sign that manifests his glory. And we're going to see that. This miracle, it's, it's really all about the manifestation of the glory of Jesus. And this sign, it's also helpful to remember what, what, what do we, why do we see that. It's because in the, in the passage, in this, it's in context of the, the wider book of John. You see, John 20, we drew attention to this the first week when we went, started going through this, this gospel of John. John 20, verse 30 and 31. What does it say? It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So Jesus did a lot of signs, a lot of things that pointed to something about himself, something about who he is, something about who we are, something about what he came to do. And, but they're not all written in the book. He says, but these, these, these seven signs that John actually writes about throughout his gospel, and this is the first of these seven signs, they're written so that what? So that you might believe. So the miracles, the signs are not just to be like, whoa, that's really cool. Jesus can make water into wine. So, hey, are we to bring Jesus our water so we can have some wine in the fridge? I mean, is, is that the point? Well, no. That's not what it's saying. But these signs are written so that you might believe something specific, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life. So these signs are meant to point to Jesus, point to your need for him, And point to the fact that in him is life. And in that context, this is the beginning of those signs that does what John is talking about in John 20. So everything that happened, Jesus did to make visible a hidden reality. Something that was veiled before, Jesus made a sign to show, hey, this signifies what I came to do. And so what we see in this passage are three ways. We're going to see, look at three different ways that this sign, this, this miracle functions This sign reveals and it points to three realities at least. And there's a bunch of things that are true because of these realities. But three realities it points to. And the first reality this sign points to is a sign of our need. This miracle is a sign or symbol or points to our need. This is not just about the need at the wedding. This is about the need that humanity has. The insufficiency of humanity even in the most celebratory, joyful moments, there's a need. We have a need. Now, many different religions recognize that there's a need. And they look for all kinds of answers, ways to fulfill those things. 
Some, some religions, they point to, well, we have a need, so we better work really hard to meet those needs. And that's, that's Islam. We better work hard to achieve. We better do all these things to meet these needs so that God is pleased with this. And, and really, that's Old Testament Judaism was pointing to the fact, highlighting our needs. Highlighting the fact, though, that, that our needs really can never be met there. Other religions look for fulfilling those needs in different ways. Um, there is a religion, Buddhism, that, that actually fo- focuses on the, the need or the want or the emptiness. There's a symbol that they use. It's, it's a circle with a hole in it. And that is a symbol of emptiness. You see, because Buddhists, they recognize that there's a struggle with all of us want things that we don't have. We, we desire things. We want things we don't have. And so there's a struggle. And so there's problems. We, we want peace and relationships, but we realize there's arguments and frustrations. And so because we don't get that peace, we get angry sometimes. Because we don't see justice, we get angry. We, we have basic needs like food and happiness or fulfillment. We have a desire for ease. We want all kinds of things. And so uh, Buddhists, they, they think, well, you know what? Hey, we, we have all these things we recognize we want. And so, hey, the source of our problem is that we want things too much. And so let's get rid of the wants and let's just become empty. Well, that's kind of ridiculous. It's a farce. So I'm going to let go of every desire. Well, then you stop functioning as a human. You stop functioning as a human we all have needs. We all have wants. The problem isn't that we have needs or wants. The problem is where we're looking to, to fulfill those needs and wants. The problem is, is that our emptiness is not, it's not a good thing. It's that we are meant to find fulfillment in God. We're meant to find that we are empty and we need someone else to fill our emptiness. And so the scene opens up with a wedding and there's a problem at this wedding. Immediately, there's, there's this wedding scene. It tells us on this third day. And, and by the way, this, this third day, it's, it's the third day after what's been going on. And, and if you started counting the days of what John has been doing so far, this would actually be the, the seventh day that John has referenced. And so he says, the third day was a wedding in Cana at Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And they're there. We're not sure who this is wedding for. It's probably a family friend. Mary had some uh, desire to, to, to care for this couple, this, this wedding. And, and like all weddings, something went wrong. I don't know about you and your wedding, but anybody here, when you, when you got married, anything go wrong in your wedding at all? Anybody? Anything happened that you were like, didn't plan for? I mean, even if you laughed it off, it wasn't a big deal. I know our wedding, lots of things didn't go like we planned. And, and they just kind of made it actually all the more fun in a sense. Sometimes things go very wrong. Whether you know it or not, there's always something slightly off in most weddings. And as a pastor, I have the privilege of seeing most of those things and the weddings that I help officiate. In this wedding, though, there's, it's not different. There, there's, there's a problem. Now, we might not think it's a big problem, especially if you grew up in this culture in Greenville where um, abstinence is preached as the rule, as in you can only be holy if you do not drink. And so you'd be like, hey, no wine at the wedding. That's good, right? Not true for a Jew. Not true in the first century. It was actually a problem. And this, this was real wine. This, this wasn't just watery colored. This wasn't grape juice. They, they knew the difference between grape juice and wine. And in this wedding, wine had run out. And, and the weddings there, they were, they were often lengthy. They would, they would last anywhere from like three days to a week of celebrations. It was a wonderful, joyous celebration. But unlike today, the, the bridegroom would be the one to provide. His family, he would be the one that was, he would spend a year, they would spend this, this time of betrothal, and this whole period of betrothal was so that he could prepare and get ready for the wedding and then the rest of their life so he could prepare and he could have enough and he could provide and they would provide not only a meal and, and, and other people would bring things but he would provide the wine for all the guests and it was an expectation from the bride and, and the bride's family and, and, if, and if the bridegroom didn't provide it was actually seen as a great offense it was seen as a great offense because if, if the bridegroom was not able to provide even at the beginning at the wedding then there's a real problem it was, it was symbolic, the fact he's not going to be able to provide in the marriage. 
He's not going to be able to provide for them going forward. If he couldn't just simply provide for this one feast, these, even if it's a week, he couldn't plan well. And if it wasn't good enough to plan, provide, he didn't have enough, then it's a real problem. And actually, sometimes there were lawsuits. The, the bride's family would sue the groom for not providing abundantly, not providing adequately. And so there was, there was a bunch of, bunch of things involved here. And one of the things was there was some shame involved for the, for the bridegroom. There, there was potential for animosity to happen. And, and they had a, a need. They had a desire for wine. Now, they, they weren't necessarily getting drunk. Don't, don't be thinking that they're imbibing to the point that they're getting drunk and, or that somehow this is an endorsement of, of drunkenness or imbibing to, imbibing to excess. It's not. But you see, wine was a symbol of celebration. Wine was a symbol of joy. Wine was a symbol of gladness. And in fact, in Psalms, it says that, that wine makes the heart glad. So it was a symbol of gladness. And if there's not wine, there's no gladness. There's not wine, there's no provision. There's not wine, there's deep need. If there's not wine, there's an inability for the groom to provide. And so one of the signs we see at the very beginning here is this, this sign in this, this miracle. Why did Jesus give wine? I mean, why does he do this at all? He could have just been at the wedding and like Jesus' mom said, hey, by the way, there's no wine. He's like, oh, well, nothing to do with me. I didn't plan this wedding. And that wouldn't have been sinful. It wouldn't have been wrong. But Jesus wanted to highlight that there was a, a need and that there's a need in humanity. Wine being symbolic of joy. Symbolic of feasting, of celebration, of, of provision. And, and what we see is that our, our best planning is not enough, that the best plans of humans is not enough. What we provide for our wedding is insufficient. What we, we become empty, we run out, gladness runs out, joy runs out, celebration runs out, feasting. It is we, are, are, we cannot provide enough. We have a need. Even in the midst of our celebrations, we're in need, we're inadequate, we can't supply what's needed for true celebration and joy on our own. Now, I, I'm not sure why exactly Mary was talking to Jesus about the need, but she obviously cared. It was probably a relative. She's probably a caring friend of the family. Maybe she was involved in the kid. We have no idea, but but we know that Mary took an interest, and in, what does she do? When she sees a need, what does she do with the need? She goes to Jesus. Now, maybe it was because Jesus was her oldest son, and he's, he's like 30 now, and, and most likely Joseph had passed away because we don't really see him throughout the Gospels. Jesus was 30. He was the oldest son, and, and, and like a lot of families, you look to the oldest son when the dad passes away, and Jesus was obviously really good at everything he did because he was perfect. Um, he, he did everything perfectly. He did everything right, everything well. He was completely faithful all the time. So, you know, if I had somebody I knew who was completely faithful all the time, really smart, always knew the right answer, always knew the right thing to say, the right way to say it, um, could figure things out, could solve any problem, I might think, hey, I should ask that person. Right? And so Mary saw that's who Jesus is. She knew that's who Jesus was. I wonder sometimes if we do. So she, she, for whatever reason, she expected he would be able to meet the need. She was a resourceful, and he was a leader of men already. And in his interactions, we saw last week with Nathaniel, we, we saw that he actually knows the thoughts and intents of the heart and sees people where they're at before they're even coming to him. So he, he sees all things and sees into the heart of man. So Mary turns to Jesus, and that's... That's not really surprising. What's surprising is that in a moment we're going to see that Jesus at least gently corrects her. But the sign shows that we can't provide. It shows that we have a need. It shows that, that we need to come to him with our needs. Do, do you come to Jesus with your needs? What do you do when you have a need? Maybe this week you've been aware of a lot of different needs. Some needs you just can't do anything about. You know, they, they couldn't have, if they have a large wedding, there's no way in, in this little teeny town of Cana, they probably already bought up all the supplies of wine. They can't just go out and, and buy 150 gallons of wine. You know, they didn't have total wine down the road. 
They needed something that they couldn't supply. And so Mary comes to him. And and notice, though, there's some things here happening. She comes to him, and he corrects her. And we're going to see why he does that. But he comes, she comes to him, and he gently corrects her. And, and, and when he corrects her, he says, woman, what, what does this have to do with me? Now, at the same time, you think, okay, wait a minute. Why, why does he call her woman? Shouldn't he be saying mom? Because this is not a normal term for a good Jewish boy. A good Jewish boy wouldn't say woman to your mom. Now, it's not rude. Like when we say it today, we might be like, woman. And that, that would be a rude way of putting something to our mother. And, and actually, if I talked to my mom that way when she was alive, I, I would have heard something, <clears throat> um, at least if not from her, from my dad. Um, and so he says, woman, and that's a little surprising. He doesn't address her as mother. He says, no, wait a minute. How, when you have a need, you don't come to me as if you dictate the terms. You don't come to me as if I'm beholden to you. You don't come to me as if now I do things before you because you're my mom. I'm, I'm changing the terms. I'm redefining the relationship. Um, you come to me now, and I'm, coming, I'm responding to you as a woman, not as my mom. And by the way, he says, what does this have to do with me? He said, you know, you, you don't dictate the terms. And you, I'm not relating to you as mother. We all come equally on the same terms. And we all equally need Jesus to supply our joy, even in the midst of celebration. And there's a sign of our need, and the second sign that we see is a sign of our true bridegroom. The sign of our true bridegroom. Look in verse 4, it says, And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And, and, he, and he, he's pointing to himself. Now, if I showed you a picture, I think I have an image, a, a symbol, another symbol up there. If I showed you this symbol, okay, we all know that in, in white there with the, with the veil, that, that's a symbol of, of a bride, right? So then seeing that, what, what would that symbol of this man with this dark tuxedo thing on, what would that symbol be of? A groom. And so John here, he's pointing us to a symbol of who Jesus really is, that, that Jesus is really the, the one who's able to supply. Jesus is the actual all-sufficient bridegroom. And Jesus, though, when he's talking to his mom, he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And you think, why does he say that? Why does he talk about an hour? Why does Jesus talk about an hour? What, what is John highlighting here? What is this a sign of? What is this pointing to? And, and, and all throughout the book of John, at least, at least four separate occasions... Whenever this hour is being referred to, it's always referring to something different. It's pointing forward to something else. It's a sign pointing to that final hour when Jesus, when he says, Father, the hour has come. Let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The hour is the hour of Christ's suffering, the hour of his, now it's not a literal hour, but the time of his suffering, of his punishment, of his death and of his resurrection. And so at the beginning of this miracle, this Jesus, Jesus is like, hey, this is not about the wedding. This is not about the wine. You're asking me about wine, and you're wanting me to reveal who I really am, that I really am the wine, the one who supplies the wine. Woman, my hour has not yet come. And he, and he says this in response to her request from, for wine, because he knew that the prophets looked forward to the fact, the time that when wine would flow was when the Messiah would come. In Jeremiah 31, 12, Hosea 14, 7, Amos 9, 13, when the Messiah comes, the wine flows. And Jesus is saying, you're asking me for earthly wine, but really, if I'm doing this, I'm going to reveal that I'm the one who brings the wine. I'm the Messiah. And, and later, he would tell a parable of his kingdom coming as like when a king gave a wedding feast for his son. In Matthew 22, Jesus says, there, let the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like when a king gives a wedding feast for his son. It's when he says his hours yet come. He means it's not the time of his greatest giving of wine yet. But it's meant to point to that. This miracle of water turned to wine, it's going to point to him as the ultimate provider of the best wine. 
And we're not sure what his mother thought he meant, but she was confident in her faith in Jesus. And she didn't seem um, deterred when he gently corrects her, when he says, no, wait a minute, you don't dictate the terms. No, we come on the, you come to me on, on the same terms everybody else does. You don't, you don't come with special treatment. You, you come as a woman, not just, not as my mother. Everybody has to come to the Messiah equally. She wasn't deterred. She didn't turn away and think, oh my goodness, I'm not, forget that. She didn't get angry. No, she persevered. In fact, she doesn't say anything in response to him. It's kind of funny. It's almost a humorous interaction here. There's a lot of humor in the story as well. There's a, there's a feast, runs out of wine. You know, Jesus is there with all the disciples. And she's like, hey, um, there's, there's, they've run out of wine. He's like, what does that do with me, woman? And she's like, yeah, you know, uh, just do whatever he tells you. And, and his mother says to the servant, do whatever he tells you. And what that's really revealing is that she leaves it in the hands of Jesus. She has a need. She's aware of the need. And, and she's undeterred. She has faith. She leaves the need in the hands of Jesus. I, I love the way D.A. Carson reflects on this verse. He says, in short, in, in, in verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In verse 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is honored. She still doesn't know what he would do, but she's committed the matter to him and trusts in him. But is that what we do? do, do we, are we deterred? Do we realize, wait a minute, we don't, we don't have any, any separate access to Jesus, separate than the way he provides. We, we, we don't come dictating the terms, but we can have faith that he is the one who knows our needs, is able to meet our needs, and we can trust him, even when we don't know what, what he's going to do. He can be trusted with our needs. Now, you might think, well, well, why did Jesus do this in the first place? Because, you know, why did he care about this wine? I think it's meant to demonstrate this sign or symbol that Jesus actually cares about our, our human needs. He cares about our earthly needs, our earthly desires. And, and some might have expected Jesus to say in this point and say, you know, wine, it's bad. And don't drink to excess. And your problem is you guys have all drank too much. And so that's on you. Um, and, and, or he might have said, you know what, hey, you ran out of wine, but water's better for you anyway, so have some water. And, or, or maybe some people would have expected that Jesus would have corrected the groom and used this as a teaching moment and tells the groom, hey, you didn't plan well enough, you didn't provide well enough, so plan better, provide better, save up more, you did a bad job, I'm going to correct you. And he actually would have been justified in all those things. But he doesn't do that, he he sees needs, he sees desires, and he seeks to meet them. He doesn't do that. He, he saw their need, and he, instead of correcting them, instead of talking to them about the excesses of wine, instead of talking about the, the failure to provide, he provides his own wine in abundance. And then we see something in verse 7. Look down at verse 7. We see something about the bridegroom. He's, he's to be obeyed. The bridegroom's to be obeyed. And then the second thing we'll see about that is that obedience doesn't make the change happen. He can be trusted with our needs. That's what we see about the bridegroom. He can be trusted with our needs. The bridegroom can be trusted with our needs. And then we see he's to be obeyed. But the obedience doesn't make the change happen. Look in verse 7. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they did. They obeyed. They, they filled the water up to the brim. And, and then Jesus, he answers the request of his mother. He turns, he gives them instructions. It must have seemed like a bizarre request to them, wouldn't it? Have? If you were servants and you just overheard this conversation between Jesus and his mother and the disciples are standing there and the servants, you're just kind of standing there quietly. You're like kind of, okay, Jesus is kind of telling his mom, calling his mom woman and then correcting her. Like, I'm just going to kind of fade into the background here. not going to say much. And then Jesus turns to you as a servant and says, hey, now fill those jars up with water. And you're like, that was really weird. Um, we need wine, not water, man. Like, what's that going to do? And why are you putting that water in those jars for purification that we wash with? Well, they were clean. Well, that's good. But why water? You know, Jesus could have. He could have done the miracle differently, right? But he didn't. And that's important. We're going to get to that later. Why, why does Jesus do it this way at all? Why does Jesus even use jars for purification? Why didn't he just say, great Mom, I'll meet the needs. By the way, everybody check your glass. They're all full of wine. Everybody check the empty wine bottles because they would have had those. I'm going to fill all the empty wine bottles with wine. They now have wine. 
I mean, he didn't have to have like another step involved, right? So whenever he does signs, it's important to pay attention to how he does the signs, how he does these miracles. They're meant to point to something. But no matter what they thought, these servants, they obey their master. They fill them all the way up to the brim. They obey, and they're completely full. And it doesn't say that they did anything else, that they said special words or that he prayed over the water or even told him what he was doing. They didn't understand, but there was a need, and he is to be obeyed. The bridegroom is to be obeyed. But we see as well that their obedience doesn't make the change happen. And I, and I love that because sometimes in our obedience, we, we obey the master, we obey what Jesus is telling us, and sometimes we get confused and we think that our obedience, it makes the wine, right? We think that our obedience brings about the change. Our obedience brings about the transformation. And, and that's not what we see here. This is a sign of the fact that we obey. We're, Jesus gives us a part to play. He doesn't have to. He didn't have to have the servants be a part of that to bring this transformation about. He didn't have to have the servants play a part. He didn't have to have the servants fill these jars up, but he did. He, he let them be a part of that, but he's the one who brought the transformation. And so when they do, he still doesn't tell them anything. He doesn't say, hey, look, I made wine. He doesn't say that. He, says, <laughs> he gives them some more commands. He says, now, draw some out. Draw some. You put water in there, now draw it out and take it to the master of the feast. And they must be thinking, this is really strange. Now, we don't know what point all that water a lot of water, 150, 180 gallons of water, somewhere in that range. We don't know when that, at what point it, it turned to wine, but at some point it did. Because they said, as he said to them, draw some out, look at verse 8, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And they did, they did as he commanded. When, when the master asks us to do something, we, we need to obey whether we understand it or not. And we can trust that he actually knows what he's, what he's doing. And that he's going to use that to bring transformation. And so they obey, they take some out, they take the master feast, and at some point the water becomes wine. You know, we, we respond in faith, and he, he works miraculously. He's, he's the one. And, and in the wine, it, it, it's this, this miracle of the water to wine. It's symbolic. It's a sign of something. You remember at the beginning of John when it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says that there was, what, nothing that was made, that was made without him. In, everything was made through him. Everything was made by him. There's nothing that was made that was made without him. He, he's, the, he's the maker. What we see here is the immediate sign of the fact that he's the maker. He's the maker. He's the creator. He's the creator. This is who is being pointed to. This is who this sign is revealing. This sign is revealing something. It's revealing that he's a creator. Because I don't know about you, I wish I could turn water to wine. And I'd probably sell it. Make a good profit, Right? Nobody can do that. Now you might say, well, okay, we, well, we water grapes. We plant grapes. We water them. Yeah, but do you make the grapes grow? Do you make germination happen? Do you make all those things happen? No. So Jesus did far more than we could ever imagine. He, he created wine from water. He immediately created something that wasn't. But it wasn't just creation. It was transformation. So we see that he's the creator. He's also the transformer. He's the one who transforms. And then what do we see as well? We see something that he, he does something with these jars, right? He says, fill them how far? To the brim. Now, um, I think I have a picture of water filling a glass up of water or jar. There we go. Perfect. There's the glass. If I filled that glass of water like that, would you say that that was full? You can answer. That's an appropriate moment. <laughs> yes, it's full, right? And so go back to the one with the jars. And so these jars, they're, they're filled all the way up to the brim, now, those are earthenware jars, not stone jars, but stone jars are clean. There's no earth involved, and so it's just taking what God made and making them so that they're symbolic of pure things. But, so he fills these jars up, has them fill the jars all the way up to the brim, to the very top. And then he converts that, changes that, transforms that to wine. And that's a sign of something. It's, that in itself is a sign. It's a, it's a symbol, a sign pointing to the fact that he is the one who meets all of our needs. He is the one who fills us to overflowing. He is the one who provides more than enough. He is the only one who can provide sufficient for our marriage and beyond. He's the one who meets all of our needs and does better than we can. Because nobody would fill their jars up that full. You ever, you ever done that to somebody when you're sitting at the table and you fill their glass all the way to the rim? <laughs> well, I mean, you only do that if you're messing with them or if it's an accident. But, 
Um, because you can't pick that up. It's, nobody does that, but Jesus does. Now, he's not messing with us. He fills to abundance. And then it says he's able to meet our needs, but he does it better than we can. Look in, look in verse 9. It says, when the master of the feast came, and he, he tested the water because the water become wine, he didn't know where it came from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And it's interesting, the servants didn't say anything. Maybe they knew their place. They feared the master. We're not sure. But the master, he tastes the wine. He's surprised. He's like, whoa, this is really good. The master of the ceremony, the guy who's in charge of the feast and making sure everything tasted right, he said, wow, this wine is wonderful. And what's that show us about the Savior? It shows about Jesus that he is the giver of better wine than we could ever make, than we could ever provide. And this wine... It's a symbol of celebration, and he is the one who gives wine. He is the one who gives us true joy. He's the one who gives true celebration. And then I mentioned earlier that it's important that it says the beginning and at the end of this miracle that it happened in Cana of Galilee. Why does John do that? You see, when the gospel writers write things, they're not just kind of throwing things out there. John could have written a lot of things. He told you that already. He says, there's so many things done here that I didn't write about. These things I wrote about were for a purpose. They aren't made up, but he picked the things that Jesus did to point to something. And so he says, this happened in Cana of Galilee at the very beginning of verse 1. There's a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And he didn't have to say it. He said, you should have said there was a wedding. Now, he could have grounded it historically and just said at Cana in Galilee. But he repeated it again in verse 11. Now, if you were a Jew reading this, you would have thought, okay, twice he's mentioning something at Cana of Galilee. What does Galilee remind us of? What does Galilee tell us? Why is Galilee important here What's it, what it reveals, what it points to is a sign of fulfillment of Isaiah 9. In Isaiah 9, it says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. It's important that this first sign happens in Galilee because Galilee is first where the light shines. Now, that's important. Where am I getting that from? What, you remember the beginning of John? It says that what, he is the light of the world. And this was the first demonstration of him being the light, the glory of God, the light of God. The one who came to dispel darkness to, to meet our deepest needs. And then the third sign is, not only is it a sign of our need, a sign of our Savior, but it's a sign of all we have in Jesus. I intentionally skipped over verse 6. It's a sign of all we have in Jesus. Look at, look at verse 6. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for what? John, John doesn't just say, hey, there were six stone water jars there, and Jesus filled them, and that was cool. He says, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These were big, big jars. I'm guessing, you know, you're probably like this tall each. 20 or 30 gallons. And they were jars for the Jewish rites of purification. See, in the Jewish law, it required before meals and ceremonies that you would ritually cleanse, that you would ritually wash because you were signifying that you needed to be made clean, you needed to be purified. And so before you would do sacrifice, before you do meals, or before you would enact covenants, before you would do many things, there was these rites of purification. And so the host had to have these water jars on hand to provide water for cleansing. And in fact, John, the Baptist, when he baptized... His baptism was a baptism of, of purification, of, of, of symbolic, of, of cleansing, of ritual cleansing. It was the same symbol. We talked about this the last time of, of the ritual cleansing of Jews that need to be clean. But actually, it was the ritual cleansing for Gentiles, and John applied that to the Jews. He said, you too need to be cleaned. You need to be baptized. And so we have these water jars used for purification, for cleansing. And Jesus could have done something. Why he does this, what, why he uses these jars is significant. He wasn't doing this haphazardly. Remember, Jesus was the creator. He could have just said, all y'all got wine, all right? No, he probably wouldn't have said y'all, but you all have wine in all your glasses. Check them. And by the way, you're going to drink it, and the wine's never going to empty out. He could have done that, right? There's no reason not to. Why does he choose an extra step? We choose an extra step to point to something, to signify something. These water, these jars for purification would have been provided 
in fulfillment of the Jewish laws requiring ceremonial cleansing. And, and how often did they have to do this? All the time. Every time they ate, they were supposed to do this. Every time they made sacrifices, every time they had a covenant, every time. This continual reminder that they weren't clean, that they couldn't get clean, and they had to ritually clean. This constant need for cleaning all the time, and yet they could never get clean. And Jesus says, yes, you can't. You can't ever get clean. But I'm replacing that whole system. I'm, I'm replacing that that whole system of water for purification. I'm replacing the system of cleansing. I'm replacing this old way, the way of the law that could only temporarily but not truly bring permanent cleansing, not bring true peace to a conscience troubled by sin. Under the law, you have to cleanse yourself continuously, and I'm going to do something that would have been a violation. I'm going to put something in there. I'm going to change it. I'm going to, I'm going to repurpose all those purification jars because they're no longer needed. And so... He replaces this way of making cleansing, this temporary cleansing. And he gives us wine in place of it. I mentioned earlier the wine is celebration. And unless you think that we're making up the analogy of, of wine connected to blood or wine connected to covenant, Jesus makes that connection directly himself. Remember at the very beginning of this passage, he says, my hour has not yet come. What is his hour? His hour is the time when he would die for us. And then later, at the end of his, towards the end of his ministry, Jesus offers his disciples something. He's sitting around a table with them, and he has a glass of wine, and he makes a connection between the wine that he provides and his blood. He says, here's a cup. This is the new covenant of my blood. It's shed for the forgiveness of sins. And then, interestingly enough, he goes from there, and then he drinks the wine of God's wrath so that we could receive the wine of his joy, the wine of his feasting. He enables us and gives us his wine, his celebration, his joy. He replaces our constant need to cleanse ourselves with his cleansing blood. When we see the sacrifice Jesus made to purify us completely and give us his blood as wine, when we drink of all the benefits of his life that he's given to us, it's far greater motivation than any legalistic desire to get ourselves right before God. And Jesus' wine makes our hearts truly glad as we see that he sacrificed everything. He drank the wine of God's wrath so he can hand us the wine that comes to us that's a symbol of his blood that gives us the greatest joy. He replaces the old ways of purification. His, his, his purification is no longer in what we do. His wine replaces the old. And his wine is far better. He gives the good wine. Remember, and it says the grace, at the beginning of the book of John, it says yeah, Moses, you know, through the law, Moses gave the law, but grace and truth come through Jesus Christ for grace upon grace. This is a symbol of grace upon grace, of his extravagant provision. This is grace upon grace. The new covenant is blood. It's far better than the old covenant, the blood of animals. And in the Bible, whenever it talks about the kingdom coming, whenever the Old Testament looks forward to the coming of the kingdom, it's a coming where there is wine overflowing. Overflowing wine is a symbol of the kingdom. It's a sign of joy. It's a sign of celebration. And Jesus tells us, or John tells us, this sign manifested his glory. How does it manifest his glory? Oh, it manifests the glorious fact that that he is the one who meets our needs, that we can come to him with our needs, that he is the true bridegroom. That bridegroom, the earthly bridegroom, couldn't provide, but yet Jesus, he's the, he's the replacement bridegroom. He is the one who provides when this bridegroom couldn't provide. Jesus becomes the replacement bridegroom. He's, he's the one who provides in every way. And when the Messiah comes, there is wine to overflowing, and he, he purifies, he replaces this old system with his goodness. And he provides wine for all who come to him. In just a moment, we're going to partake of communion. 
And I want to share with you Luke 22, verse 14 to 20. It says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I won't eat of it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he broke, sorry, he took a cup, sorry. And when he'd given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. And I tell you from now on, not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This wine that I'm pouring out, that I'm offering to you, that I'm giving to you, that I'm providing to you, it's the new covenant in my blood. And and it's far better wine. And it's overflowing. It's more abundant than, than all you could Imagine, it, it, it fulfills your needs more than you could ask or imagine. I'm going to ask the band to come up, if you will. Um, we're going to close in song in just a moment. Um, hopefully you got these little cups at the back in the lobby. If you didn't get a cup, um, you can go back to the lobby and grab one yourself. That way nobody else touches it. That's why we're doing that. Um, in the cup, on the top of the cup, there is a little wafer. You can peel that back and get a little wafer out if you like. And then underneath of that wafer, the second layer, it's your, your glass of juice. Um, we, we, we didn't use real wine, but we did use the fruit of the vine. Jesus, he began and he ended his ministry with wine. It wasn't an accident that John did that, that Jesus did that. Jesus said he, he began the ministry with wine to show that he is the true wine. He's the one who supplies himself all that we need. And, and, it, and this, it points us, this marriage we see points us to another marriage celebration. It points to the fact, as we take this communion today, it, we, it points to the fact that our hope is it's in his body broken for us and his provision for us. It's in his wine that he gives to us, this wine, this is the cup of the new covenant in his blood. And it's also symbolic of the fact that one day, like Jesus said, he's going to eat and drink, drink this wine again in the kingdom. The wedding feast of the Lamb. We can be sure. We can trust him. We don't understand how he's going to provide for our needs. We don't understand this interim. We have a lot of needs. We come to him with those needs. We don't understand how he's going to meet those things. But we can see we have a need. We come to the one who meets our needs. And he is the bridegroom who is good, who can create something from nothing, who transforms. And he will meet our greatest needs and do it far better than we could ever ask or imagine. Marriage is always in the Bible a a symbol, really, of pointing to our relationship with Jesus. And Paul does, says that. He says it in Ephesians. That this, I talk about marriage, but this isn't really this union here. It's meant to point to the fact that the marriage that we will have one day. Joel 3 talks about the day when, when God can be known, and it will be like wine flowing from the mountains. And Isaiah 55 says, come buy wine without money. How do we do that? We do that by receiving from him his wine. So let's together take their little wafer out and by the way if you are sensitive you're, you you don't feel like you can take your mask down for a moment temporarily and by the way when we're done put your mask back on um, but if you don't feel like you can take your mask down for a moment uh, we want to respect that and so hold on to your cup and then you can go outside and just take a moment to pray and to receive communion we want to give you liberty to do that nobody's gonna look at you weirdly if you do that um, we want to be sensitive to conscience as well so um, but if you're comfortable just for a moment pull your mask down and this wafer, it's symbolic. It's a sign of his body that was broken for us. And the fact that, that we are going to share in a wedding feast, if we put our hope and our trust in his body broken for us, taking the punishment for all of our sins, then one day we're going to break bread again with him in the kingdom. And there is hope and there is joy in him. So let's take the way for the bread together.
as we open our little cups here, I want you to think about this miracle, this sign that happened, and think about the joy that the people in that wedding would have had when Jesus provides all that wine. Think about the joy it would have brought the bride and groom, because they'd already been feasting. They ran out of wine. Now, Jesus provided 150 to 180 gallons. That's like eight to 950 bottles of wine. That would have been more than they needed by far. And they would have taken that wine, and they could have sold it. And they would have been provided for in in their physical needs. And so they would have been really joyful. They would have been overjoyed and happy. I mean, I I can imagine the cheers that went up, and everybody saw all the wine that Jesus provided. And they were like, woohoo! And they cheered for his provision was better than what they needed. I think that's meant to be our response. And that, that will be our response one day in that wedding feast when we share the wedding supper of the Lamb. We say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, whose, whose blood we drink of, because he's more than satisfied all of our needs. He's paid for every sin. He has completely forgiven us in every way. He has made us his sons. He has, he has become our bridegroom. And he's the perfect bridegroom who perfectly fulfills, perfectly provides, perfectly satisfies to full abundance. Now, we might not understand it. We might not understand how he's doing it. But we can trust in him. So as we drink this, let's trust in him, putting our hope in him again, in his blood, this new covenant, not our ability. Let's drink together. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. Thank you that because you so loved us, you sent your only son. Jesus, thank you that because you loved us, you humbled yourself and became a man. Holy Spirit, thank you that when we put our trust in you, you fill us with yourself. We become your sons and daughters as we put our faith, our trust in you, as we renounce trusting ourselves to meet our needs, as we renounce looking to ourselves, as we renounce being able to fill ourselves, we look to you who you promised to fill us and you even give us that image when you talk about being baptized when your spirit when you make us new when you give us new life thank you Father we, we thank you God for all of us who are needs we, we confess our needs but then Lord we look to you who's able to meet every need and now Lord we want to worship you and thank you for meeting all of our needs, even when we don't have it figured out and don't understand. Thank you for your wine. Thank you for your body. Lord Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Please stand, sing together. Put your mask back on, and we will sing.